You're traveling through a dimension not only of sight and of sound, but of mind, an ambiguous aspect of reality that may appear to have free will. But if it actually does or doesn't, could depend on whether you're Lehman Pascal or Benita Roy. And whether you like it or not, you've just crossed over into the liminal point counterpoint Twilight Zone. Are you ready for me today? Bring it, Bonnie. All right. Just for our audience and for our own sanity, I thought I'd made a little roadmap of what we might talk about today because we're taking on the topic of free will, which is kind of a combinatorial explosive uh, topic. And you and I both uh, watched a excellent conversation between Rick Rapetti and John Verveke. And I've read some of Rick Rapetti's uh, works on uh, these notions. And that starts off, us off in a philosophical framework. Now, I don't really want to, I think we should share some of that and our reflections on it, but um, I think they did a really good job of that domain. So we'll talk a little about the philosophical um, and maybe the way uh, Rick touches on uh, the notion of Buddhist no self and agency inside that framework. Then I want to kind of bring it down uh, some notches into um, maybe something that's like uh, culturally timely. Like uh, we have this question of whether people have choice or agency inside complex systems. Like if you're embedded in a complex system, do you have choice? to act within that system, like capitalism, let's say. Or also this meme of the egregore. The egregore is the higher consciousness that seems to subsume the actions and the choice of the agents inside the collective conscious or unconscious. So that would be our second step. And then I, toward the end, I'd like to get into more personal reflections, like when you have done some phenomenological investigation, as I assume you have, uh, of who's acting, who's choosing, what is it like to feel at choice from a lived experience of kind of like a vipassana or a noticing of the phenomenology in your own experience. And then finally, uh, just from a personal practical, like when, do you feel you're at choice? And this is very strong feeling that you are at choice versus when you feel like you have no free will from maybe examples or something. So I thought we could try to, uh, unlike, unlike the civilized people on the liminal web, I thought we could try to find uh, some harsh and sharp disagreements <laughs> on, on, on all those planes funny because to me free will is almost a useless thing to talk about it yeah no it is but we have to <laughs> explain why yeah explain it's... why and we might have slightly different reasons for thinking that it's useless to talk about it for me uh, i think the discussion is usually flawed because it oscillates between topics that are often barely related the sort of socio-cognitive biases in how we think about choice and what are the pragmatics of developing more potent agency as well as attempts to decide about the role of determinism or indeterminism as a cosmological or ontological factor these don't strike me as um, naturally being part of the same conversation 
And I think it confuses the whole issue as people cycle around between these and it seldom really gets anywhere. Um, but I can, I think, come up with plausible connections that might superficially connect them. Uh, and for me, the place I start is that not caring about the free will debate for me is not a, not a relinquishment, but it's a way of trying to articulate something that's essential to me about the metaphysics of the situation. I think, I think that attitude is the correct way of relating to the structural impossibility of adjudicating determinism or indeterminism. I don't think those are really options. You can have like more or less of them contextually, but you can never have one or the other. They're constantly co-present and adjacent to each other, implied the structure of all possible position taking on this subject. So we might, I mean, I might say that in slash determinism is something like the position that reflects the ontological version of my pragmatic agnosticism on this topic. Uh, it's one of the reasons I mentioned last time that I really appreciate Rick's work in demonstrating that the suppositions implied in anti-free will arguments can also be deployed for pro-free will arguments because it comes back, comes closer to this sense of, of what I think is a, a structural ambiguity or a structural agnosticism in approaching the question of determinism. But if we assume there is a cosmos and this cosmos consists of entities or processes or computations, these things are mostly nonlinear. Um, they can be deterministic up to an extremely high degree, but that degree can never be finally adjudicated um, because in, in the local conditions of any process, there's some fundamental formal undecidability relative to its comprehension of the processes outside of that context. So there's an inevitable experiential undecidability about outcomes for all beings. So we have an at least relative free agency in terms of how we understand ourselves to be in the world. I think that requires us to make certain decisions about what constitutes a being as opposed to a collection of beings or an epiphenomenon of beings. It's useful in general to be able to apply the lens of adjacency and agency and intentionality as an interpretation to any cognitively chunked bit of reality. But some of those chunks seem to meet us halfway. We might say holons opposed to heaps or self-organizing autopoetic teleonomic processes as opposed to merely thermodynamic processes or something of that kind that makes that kind of distinction. So like I'm coming down here from my metaphysical position to cosmological position to singling out which beings I might be talking about when I'm talking about free will in a relative sense. So these agents, which are agents in communion, exhibit variable degrees of freedom in terms of their ability to leverage interactions toward varieties of satisfaction in outcomes. I don't think it matters much whether we think of that as something that aims toward getting free of constraints or as something that aims to enfold or creatively adapt to constraints. I think those are both ways of talking about the fact that these agents can vary in the amount of agency and communion that they bring to their circumstances. For human beings, we have this extra semantic or symbolic aspect to it where we tell ourselves stories about our free will. Um, and those seem to have 
certain types of consequences in how we adjust our relative free will. So when we tell ourselves a story that we all have free will, then that can sometimes give us an edge in performing that agency leverage in certain circumstances. But when we tell ourselves the story that we have no free will, that can also liberate us from some patterns of blame that might be holding back our ability to leverage agency. And I think there are really a set of preconditions and a set of life practices would cause people to be able to, and primarily subconsciously, increase the degree to which they can steer the outcomes of interactions in the world. So I guess that's a general summary of my position. Yes, I'll just uh, uh, tag back, ping back um, things that I resonate with. And, and certainly the philosophical argument of free will versus non-free will, Rick did a good job of showing why it's it's a kind of how many angels dance on the head of a pin. It's very similar to when you're trying to argue self, you know, the Buddhist concept of self versus no self. All these arguments of complete opposites uh, tend to break down, certainly in language. Um, so I like your distinction of, of the spectrum of freedom and the spectrum of how much will or agency we have as a practice. You know, can we reclaim more agency and maybe at some point that becomes hypercritical and we're thinking of ourselves as individual agents that are not in any kind of relationship and we need to dial this back you know so maybe these questions can be actually context specific not uh species specific you know which is an interesting question you know usually we say there's more free will more agency higher up the evolutionary stack but maybe it's more of a context versus a uh, hierarchy, which is an interesting question. For me, the there's two important things. So why does this question matter for me? One is, is I think that even though when we engage the question, we come into some kind of metaphysical uh, breakdown. Um, so we, we highlighted last time uh, when we talked about how if I'm going to have, if I define free will as I have agency, I, I have agency or control over the outcome of my actions, then everything downstream for me has to be somewhat predictable and, 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 and deterministic. And then this, and then that makes an exception of me. And this leads to all kinds of uh, questions of where does this exception happen in my body and on and on. And if I, if I then say the whole world is not deterministic, it's indeterministic, then I am forced to reconcile the question of free will without any control of my outcome. Like I can act freely, but it's somewhat loosely coupled to my intention for my outcome. One of the th reasons why I think this is important, though, is that I think these this question at a certain time of in people's lives, this question actually kind of nags at them, even if it's not explicit. Like, I think there's certain types of depression and certain types of ennui that come from a sense that you don't have agency in the world, that everything you might 
experience yourself as just being uh, triggered and being subject to laws of the universe or laws of society or complex systems like capitalism. And I think, I think the default setting, the very subtle default setting that we have is that it is a mechanistic environment. It is a mechanistic universe and we're a kind of a cog in it. And I think that's becoming, as the Christian logos, you know, Aquinas says God made us free, free willing uh, beings, and that's why we're moral. And I think as this kind of is removed from our culture, or plays a less important part in our culture and our education, I think we have this kind of devolution toward subtly thinking in terms of, uh, if not a deterministic um, reality, uh, but but a more of a mechanistic reality. Like people will say, well, complex systems are not deterministic, but they experience themselves inside of it as kind of being bounced around by forces and egregores and agents that that are not themselves. So that's why I think it matters, because I think that this, despite what people would argue philosophically, I think there's kind of a hidden assumption that we lack free will. And if you, and you know, when, and I'll just end on this. One of the things I notice in my students is that there's a whole lot of conversation around trauma and triggers and shadow. And very few people, these are highly sophisticated, philosophical, spiritual-minded people, very few people bring up the question of will. Like, how do I reclaim my will? And so I, so that's why I think it matters. I, I'm interested in reclaiming a solid and practical and, and embodied sense of, of uh, intentional agency that I can own and be responsible for and and that legitimizes you know the time I spend on the earth so that that's kind of where I'm coming from yeah I feel like I agree with the moral sentiments of that very closely I think there are it's an important question uh, how we uh, amplify our experience of agency and intentionality and the sense of um, freedom that comes along with that the sense of and sometimes when people make an argument for indeterminism uh, that what they're mostly reaching for is the phenomenological experience of oh maybe i really have some space to do something here so i think that's good and that's important and i see outside of occult and magical discourse there's been a real lack of emphasis on the will over the last 100 or 200 years. And I think it needs to come back in uh, as a really important uh, central piece. And also it has to be skewed for the kind of world that we now think we live in. Um, I'm not sure how significant I think the narratives are. I think there is some kind of uh, sense of mainstream limitation on our on what we're willing to entertain relative to the potentiality of the will 
Is that because even in complex adaptive systems views of the world, there's still a kind of Newtonian mechanistic model in which chains of causes and effects can be interpreted as either we can't really cause effects because it's indetermined or everything's determined and therefore our causes are actually just the effects of other causes, right? I think there's a, you can make a story that says that framing essentially is disempowering to people. But I think uh, I've seen enough examples of people who can or have very strong sense of will and agency uh, who've leaned into any number of different kinds of narratives. And I, I think in particular of of Nietzsche because I'm so fond of him and the idea in Birth of Tragedy that the Greek civilization, which was sort of pessimistic and fatalist, was nonetheless able to place a, a huge creative novel world historical role. And he saw them as being uh, not confined by, but liberated by their sense that they were doomed and had no choice and were the playthings of the gods. So I think it's possible for any narrative um, to either help or hinder. And I think that comes down to other factors such as practice, such as health. But I think you have some degree of leverage, some kind of wiggle room, especially if there's a dominant social frame to nudge that frame and see if it helps open people up to these very important considerations. You know, I'm thinking, I did my, um, my, my bachelor's in philosophy, I, I was bachelor's in philosophy and a, and a bachelor of science in biology, but I did my final thesis in college uh, on Nietzsche's will to power. And I want to just bookmark this, I'm going to talk about something else, but I think that that's one of the reasons we don't talk a lot about will is because we most almost always associated with that phrase, will to power, versus more like a Schopenhauer, you know, the world as will versus representation. It's a softer kind of will. And the question is, what other, what other kinds of will are they that, that, that are not will to power? Because I think when you were speaking, I was thinking, yeah, you know, there's a lot of people who have a lot of will, like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, and those are all popular. It's not necessarily what, what Nietzsche meant, but we popularly think of the word will as will to that kind of power. And so maybe a little later on, we can talk about what other kinds of desires or aims or goals can will be directed toward. Um, I want to contrast that you we talked about the that complex adaptive systems thinking can parasitize the notion of agency. And one of the reasons is is because if you if you listen to, for example, uh, evolutionary biologists who use evolutionary biology to interpret everything about the economy and it what happens is everybody there's no there's no sense of agency because everybody is responding to every adapting to everything else it's gotten so every move is an adaptation businesses get like this you know you look at the market and they make a choice by the way the market moves well, that, that of course changes the market and i think you get lost in response, adaptive response, which is not, I would say, is another kind of 
non-free will. It's another kind of non-freedom. And since everything is kind of closed into these, this kind of thinking, um, that, that's one of the problems with this malaise. And then the other thing is the same with this, this notion of resilience thinking. You know, the climate change is happening. We need to learn how to be resilient. It's the same kind of, you know, um, robbing people of, of agency. Like, why should we just be resilient to what's happening? Why, why don't we turn it around? I mean, there's, again, there's this subtle denigration or degradation of agency in these narratives that people think in some sense are agentic behaviors. And I'm saying, no, they're not agentic behaviors. And I think that my final critique on complex adaptive systems thinking is with, with respect to free will is that there's always like a comeuppance, you know? So if I, if I spray the insects with insecticide, then they get more uh, resilient. You know, everything is adapting to everything else. So you inherently build in this arms race where things go faster, but they get a lot tighter. There's like some kind of epistemic closure. And so my question in, for us in this conversation is, if the Newtonian model of cause and effect is not doing us any favors in looking at this question, and if complex adaptive systems thinking is not doing us a lot of favors, then what kind of model, mental model or orientation to the world can be beneficial toward this question that we have an intuition that we want to reclaim this stuff. I'm wondering how, uh, where does, I, I don't remember, I don't even know if he talks about it, it might be, a, but it, for Nietzsche, where does the will come from? Was it a kind of a force of character or is it some, uh, yeah, how, 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 and even if he didn't say it, if you could be the spokesperson for Nietzsche, you know, like, I think it's very similar to the notion of inside and outside quadrants, right? For Nietzsche, the, the will is, is, is one side of reading the fundamental nature of reality, right? It's like the subjective correlate to energy, right? So it, and he talks about it as being a dimension of its own. He says the will can only act on the will. It doesn't, right? It has its own domain of relationships. And so it's the way you, if you read everything as having some appetition in its structure, rather than as being um, stable, fixed units, as always, uh, as the nature of reality is always overcoming itself, is what he means by the will. Um, and his, um, he, I mean, he's very Schopenhauerian in a lot of ways. He just wants to tweak the, the connection between survival that Schopenhauer makes with the will and say that that kind of that that's a side effect of what the will really wants is to achieve a, a certain affective resonance that it's after that it gets by bringing like if you try to imagine what the subjective experience of a flow of energy is right some potential charges are brought together to a degree of a threshold where they can flow forward and interact and reshape the world and that everything has that pattern. The subjective version of that pattern is the will to power. 
of accumulating and then an overcoming and then a flowing in relationship to a system or in relation to other centers also doing this. So it's very, um, you know, it's Nietzsche himself is much more Whiteheadian, I think, than most people realize. Yeah, so in, so yeah, Schopenhauer said, I can will what I want, there's choice there, but I can't will that I will. And I think that's very similar to the energetic equation you just described. The fact that energy and will arises in me, I can't do anything about. And this is not a mechanistic view, it's a, it's a, a Elan Vital view, it's a vital, vitalism. A, a story of vitalism. But the question then is given that this is given to me freely, this, this vitality, then what do, you know, uh, how do I shape myself so that as it comes through me, it is in a preferred future or something or in toward preferred choice. And so in this sense, the reason why I find it in, interesting or hopeful is because it's it's actually saying that the most leverage I have is is in shaping my disposition such that as the energy flows through, then what the world this is very Schopenhauer the world that then presents itself to me is an act of choice is an act of if a world that has some preference for me, more preference than the opposite of preference, right? So you're not going to get everything you want, but um, can I continually, and then I shape myself again and see if I can get more preferences. If I get, you know, it's kind of like playing blackjack, you know, like let's deal another hand. Let's see if I can get more positive outcomes. And, and, so that's for him, the world as will. And all the leverage is in the choice I have over my dispositional state. So this, this is why it's not about out there and control over the outcome. And it's, it's kind of more nuanced than that. Yeah, I think there's... Like I was saying at the beginning, I think there's some formal undecidability about whether we can ever determine whether we had direct influence over outcomes or not. I think that's kind of uh, off the table philosophically, so to speak. What you're saying about Schopenhauer seems very much in accord with the way Nietzsche thinks about the potential of amplifying the agency or the will. Right? I think he comes at it from a couple angles. Uh, one, obviously healing, right? He thinks of the will as, right? The will, we would rather will the void than be void of will. Right? We don't really have a choice in whether we willing, we are willing or not, but we our willing can be more or less healthy, right? And health is his great concern. So there's a kind of willing that is decadent and self-destructive and nihilistic. And there's another kind of will that's building up and integrating all of our capacities together somehow. And I think that's what he thinks as the prerequisite for trying to sculpt yourself in accordance with the, the maximum interconnection or resonances between the qualities that make you up. And that that's facilitated by the amor fati, right? You're going to liberate your willing by trying to agree 
to everything that's happened hitherto and the reality that exists right now so that you're in the best possible position to for your will to spill over the limitations of the present and actually have some creative say. But you can't have that if you're in the reactive position of struggling against what's happened and what is. And then the other aspect of it, which gets a little bit more shamanic because he doesn't quite get into what we might think of as a cult or new age ideas about how much control could I really have at different layers of reality. But when he talks about the eternal recurrence, if we were to think of that as a mode of being that expresses indefinite extension so that the, say the, the primal shaman in an act of sacralizing something moves with a certain tempo Right? They're moving as if this occurs forever. They're beholding things as if they spill over the limits of time. And I think that sense of the eternal recurrence as a style of being comports very well with some notions in the occult tradition of how to do magic. You're going to get yourself present, but you're also going to undertake actions that express the totality of your subconscious will at a higher grade in a way that's even better than what you could come up with mentally to do as a technician in the world. Yeah, so I like that interpretation of eternal recurrence because it's it's usually reduced to something that I don't think Nietzsche was saying. It's very close to Whitehead's concept of that every actual occasion lives in every succeeding moment, right? And so for example, there was a time before there were elephants and there may be a time when there are no more elephants, but there'll never be a time when there were no elephants. This is an eternal, once it occurs, it's an etern eternal, you know, I mean, then Whitehead went on to talk about eternals and, and stuff like that, which is a little metaphysically uh, esoteric, but, but, and, and that, that, is morally important for people because there will never be another you. There will never be another me. This is eternal stamp on all future um, actuals, uh, and it changes the potential state of the future, and it sets different actuals. And so, although they're infinite, they're not exhaustive, right? So the future is infinite potentials, but it's not exhaustive because it cannot include that there were no elephants and so there's a sense of that that's a sense of agency at a, a cosmological level that we can um i think highlight and kind of turn the tide of this ennui you know <clears throat> one of the things that one of the um propositions or uh, proposals that I like to make is when we're looking at agency and free will, and we're looking at cause and effect, these are all in the same language cluster of the problem. One of the things that Whitehead would say is that the causes are always invisible, and that we only can only work with the effect. We can only, all the phenomena are effects and the causes are always invisible. And I like this because it, it really kind of explains a Buddhist notion of whether the self exists or not. And the self is like the, the cause. And so it can never 
it can never be experienced. It's not phenomenological. Um, Whitehead would say the causes are always invisible because they're potential states, they're not actual occasions. And so when you get into magic and you get into these more subtle practices, you get very interested in trying to be in harmony or be in sync or be involved with the hidden potentials and not chase so much the the effects you know so like uh an, an interesting metaphor is like the wind right we call the wind the wind but it's a hidden cause all we see is the effects of the wind though and and then we say oh the cause is the wind and that's just kind of a placeholder you know for many 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 different organizing principles that are that are happening and it's the same with the self we say oh the self is the cause of this but if we start to turn our heads around sometimes and just say you know and again it's very schopenhauer you know it's like a modern version of schopenhauer and because he's saying like you can only work with the representations the will is always behind you it's always hidden because it's it's the pre energy right before the phenomena phenomenon and, and so this is really interesting exercise a question of of it's not like an infinite regress like people get conceptual about the self and then the self's watching the self we're not talking about the will isn't like that the will isn't like who's the you know agent behind this agent and who's the the infinite regress if that happens in this conversation this is not that but it, it's interesting to look at the world as the emanation of the will or the causes that are hidden and try to feel it's very embodied. It's not a conceptual thing and, and try to work with the body and the felt sense and the mind and the, the health of the mind and your attitude and your dispositional state and see what if the emanations are different and work within those parameters and this i think gets into very shamanistic and magic what i call magic reality like there's you start to inhabit the causal manifold or the potential field of potential states. And there's some subtle pattern recognition between this state that I'm aware that I'm, I'm existing in is somehow coupled to this phenomenon that's being presented to me. And that's where I think this notion of agency, choice, creative uh, will is operable. There's an interesting thing in Schopenhauer where he struggles with the, um, the difficulty of the hidden will, uh, you know, as a sort of immoral agency behind the representations of the world. And almost fetishizes certain kinds of experiences that he calls the aesthetic contemplation or something particularly music where he feels as if the will is almost beholding itself 
when it encounters the pure intensities of basically symphonic music is what he was dealing with. And that it holds itself almost still. The will ceases to be this terrifying hidden machinery. And I think that goes a long way towards where Nietzsche starts thinking about the will to power, right? That these moments where the underlying force that we don't see uh, accomplishes some resonance with itself. And in that resonance, there's an intense existential satisfaction and a kind of overflow that this is what power is when Nietzsche thinks it. It's the thing that the saints and the poets get uh, and that, uh, you know, political biopolitics kind of maneuvers attain little bits of it, but they don't get anywhere near what the great human beings were able to get in terms of like sussing out how they can maximize that experience. And I think in his mind, if you can do that more effectively, you're a, a greater participant in whatever's going on that we can't see. And that to me speaks to certain of the magical traditions that assume there's a, a higher form of magic that deals with a like a qualitative integrated participation that would go beyond the forms of magic where you try to call something into existence. So if we were, if we were going, okay, let's go beyond the complex adaptive model of the world and include all of the potentials in the picture, then what kind of thing do we have? Right. One of the first obvious moves and we go, well, how do I choose a potential and try to call it into being? Right. What kind of spell do I do to get that one rather than that one? Uh, and that reflects the same sort of ancient agency and in some ways mechanistic assumptions that we've dealt with. They have a certain range of effectiveness, but it may be that that very form of tactical uh, choosing and implementing logic uh, has some inherent limitation that you can go beyond uh, with a qualitatively oriented whole being move. And I think this is what's pointed at in, uh, say, Christianity and Buddhism, where they propose that they have a superior magic to the local pagan magic. And it's done with some kind of attentiveness intentionally to certain kinds of qualitative outcomes. So now you will the will of God, so to speak. You want the integrated, generalized, best thing as far as you can tell. And I think that's embodied in, in, in basic, healthy shamanic moves. And I think that has probably, I mean, this is my instinctive feeling, is that its range of effect on the cosmos is greater than the range of effect from trying to magic a specific outcome into existence. Yeah, that's really, that's really fascinating. So I'm thinking of let's trying to give some examples because people listening to this might, might <laughs> be a little confused. And of course- What are they talking about? What are they talking about? Okay, so I'll start with, a middle range, I'll go to another range, and then I'll go down to the cosmological range. So most of this is, like you said, it's not like you can, if you get too intentional, you get too coupled to outcomes, you get too conceptual, you start to have a mental model of cause and effect. So it doesn't really work like that. But it's more like you, when you're a kid and you learn about trajectory and what's yourself and what's other and it's more like noticing so but you have to so so one of the 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 tools that this willing 
requires is keen, attentive attention and perception. So you might go into the woods and you think, oh, the deer are afraid or the bears are aggressive or the mosquitoes are biting today. These are common occurrences. If you spend a lot of time in nature, you realize that there's a certain way of being where the deer become curious about you and the bears seem intelligent and friendly and the mosquitoes don't bite. And you start to realize there's something I, I can do to, with myself that all of a sudden presents the world in a way that is magical or was completely, it, it, it seemed like an impossibility. Like I had this one idea of the world, that idea of the world does something to my posture. And that posture presents then for me, my idea of the world. There's this kind of thing going on. And once you notice that, then you start to say, well, what if I let go of that idea? It's really hard. You know, I work, do these workshops with horses where the person's like, the horse is afraid of me. And I say, do something different with your body. And some people literally they try something else, but it's still the same body. And so part of this, a lot of this is very embodied. Like, can I do something different with my body? If I do something different with my body, does the world present itself in a different way? So this is definitely true for animals. We get into the whole metaphysics of it, but I'm just giving examples. But then it's also certainly true for people, you know, if you're a teacher and you walk into class and you don't have any bandwidth, then this class is primed. You've created a potential state for things that perhaps you're not happy with. And the move is always, what can I do from here, such when the energy comes up, it presents itself in a different way. And so this is also true for people who like are doing these we space practices and i've done, run organizational conversations facilitated uh, organizational teams on this and what people will do is they keep they'll keep on saying we should do this or why are you being so aggressive or i'm getting tired versus what can i do with my body that moves this potential in the direction that I want to do, instead of always representing the problem, what can I do, my, the, my next act of speaking, or maybe not speaking, is already in the direction of the movement I want to see. That's what I'll tell people. And sometimes it takes some three or four times, I, I'm, I'll say, no, can you, what I want, to happen is the next movement of your body is not about the direction you want the conversation to go or the meeting to go, but it is already in that direction. And these are very powerful ways to work. These are examples of how you can work with this, what I call this, this immediate space of free freedom is in this this space and um yeah and then there's a question of whether larger 
social or cosmological events can be, whether an individual can predispose, to what extent an individual can predispose um, larger uh, cosmological or sociological events, that, that will just put on the back burner for now. But I know these, these in these two domains, there's certainly a lot of interplay you can have with, with these, the causal manifold. Body, which obviously has a special significance in Schopenhauer as an as a intersection <laughs> of the world and the will certainly is the intermediary uh, for a lot of experiences of potential trying to come into the world. I think that gets underestimated. It's also very, uh, I want to say Reichian, which is to say, you know, if, if, if you can't flow through the unit, then it doesn't matter <laughs> what you're trying to accomplish. You won't accomplish it properly. Uh, and there's some kind of as well, some kind of uh, like somatic metacognition element, which is to either be present as as voluntarily agreeing to dispose your body in certain ways, or hopefully also there to be a guardian, as it may there may be potentials that come up for the body, and you go, oh, that leads me down a very dark path. I probably shouldn't act that out. So to be there as a sort of an extra qualitatively oriented observer participant in connection with the body seems important. You know, when it comes to um, indirect effects on large parts of the universe, I think it's uncertain and perhaps unknowable, but there doesn't seem to be any like fundamental informational limit in terms of what, what a what manifest change goes with what change in the organizational structure of reality. So it may just be fantastical, but you can easily think of a Taoist sage goes out and just, you know, moves a couple of the stones in his pathway and goes back inside. And that participates in shifting vast eons of time or some other such fantastical scenario. It doesn't seem like that's out of the question. If we think of the universe as a, as a process and informational system, right? You could any any icon on the computer could be wired to perform any function, and therefore any manifest activity could be wired to perform any function. So we don't know what the limits of that are, but there doesn't seem to be any reason to suppose uh, there could be any number of indirect linkages that way. Yeah. So I think that you know, again, we have to be be careful here because. I think the the linkages in the on the cosmological cosmological or ontological level are are not they're complex and they're not and they're nuanced. So we 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 have to avoid saying uh, void entering into a Newtonian again cause and effect and saying oh she's saying an idea she has is going to cause. Uh, the stars to rotate differently or something like that. And so we're not saying that because we're not saying, we're saying that that's not how cause and effect actually works. It's a coarse graining uh, that works in different contexts. And so what I want to say is that, for example, uh, Maxwell, Maxwell's demon is 
you know, the great physicists, they did a lot of thought experiments. And part of the thought is experiments is to try to disembed themselves from limiting mental models. And Maxwell's demon is what he what he what he is is this little little demon in a box who um, there's a box and there's a divider. And at first there's just, you know, maximum entropy. There's just molecules, gas molecules on both sides. But what he does is he systematically takes the high energy mo uh, molecules, puts them here, and he takes the low energy, he's a sorter. And then when he sorts entropy this way, he gets a motion machine because he's acted like a battery. He's got energy on one side and low energy on the other side. And you could, you know, perpet you could keep create a perpetual motion machine because you have this little demon doing the work inside. Okay. So this is an example of why it's impossible because it breaks the laws of thermodynamics. And what Maxwell, the reason why he created this thought experiment, he says, no, it's because we have the mental model of the first law of thermodynamics that we cannot narrate the situation correctly. Do you see the difference? It's not, so what I'm saying is, is that this is his insight. Of course, he couldn't, he hasn't gotten through it, but he's, but he's, so does, does a certain dispositional state that could perceive the world differently from, from within the first law of thermodynamics doesn't change the world, doesn't make all of a sudden now the first law of thermodynamics is different, but it changes in the sense for our experience, it would change how the world works, right? And so, so that's, that's, and uh, Einstein, for example, he, people don't appreciate how causality changes from Newtonian to Einsteinian uh, physics. And that is in, in Newtonian physics, if things are moving, if objects are moving, they don't move under their own will or agency. There needs to be a force coming from somewhere else that moves it, right? And so this, the force that moves things, the apple down to the ground is gravity. So he makes up this term gravity because he has a metaphysics that says objects don't move by themselves. Einstein comes along, he says, there's no third force gravity, mass curves space and time. This is the self agency of mass. You don't need a mass and then gravity. Gra gravity is the express emanation of mass itself. So, basically saying that masses have our self-agentic form, that, they, that, that there is no need to apply another term to what we see happening. Because gravity, it, it, do you see what he's saying? He's saying that the, the, the mass, matter, is self-agentic. And so you put an apple and the earth put two bodies in space and the apple's gonna pull on the earth and the earth's gonna pull on the apple. And we see this from a, our perspective, we just see the apple fall. We don't see the earth wobble with it. And so 
this gives us permission. There's many instances of this in modern um, uh, both physics and um, microbiology. I mean, sub, sub uh, molecular biology. You see these these worlds built up by agents that that are just doing what they're doing because they're in matter is in relationship to other matter. You know, if I take this is completely reductive, but if I take a uranium, I you know rod and put it into whatever you're supposed to put it into, you get nuclear explosion. If I put magnesium into water, you get an explosion. The force doesn't come from anywhere else. It's like, where'd the cause come from? It doesn't come from anything else. These are just bodies in space. They have self-agentic bodies coming into relation to each other, creates other kinds of agencies. And, and so what I'm trying to say is that this is a real, it's this, you know, Einstein, unfortunately, Einstein, Whitehead, all these people, you know, James, William James, these, these ideas are hundreds of years old, and it gets no traction in our, our contemporary imagination. Uh, we make no progress because we're stuck in kind of like Stone Age ideas of, of cause and effect and and yeah, so that's the leap that I wish people, when they argue about these things, they, they would inhabit at least the Einsteinian view, at least the Whiteheadian view, at least, you know, can we get there? Can we speak from, can we create narratives through these lenses that I think, um, you know, are timely and they deserve more embodiment that we need to embody these radically uh, alive, like you said, Reichian, it's a radical living universe. Um, and every time we as philosophers slip back and we talk about choice or agency in these older models, we constantly are reinstituting this ultimately mechanistic view and creating this kind of ennui, you know, or anami that in, in, in people. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to read the transcript. <laughs> I don't want to read the transcript of what I just said, but I think you get some idea. <laughs> yeah, the body is very interesting there because obviously we can you know, by shifting the types of worldviews that we're discussing and using to build formal models, we can nudge things in a certain direction, but there's also a limit imposed by our experience of the body. This was a point that Reich made a lot, which is that if you can't feel flows of stimulation through your mobile body, you're going to have a very hard time cognitively imagining that flows of energy pattern the world. And I think there's a similar thing there with the Newton to Einstein move which is in many respects a move towards uh, decentralization, a greater distribution of agency, right? In the Newtonian model, everything is mechanical and the mechanics are set in motion by the original mover, who's a lot like me, Newton. I get to, I'm the agent hidden in that model. 
but I'm probably, you know, have that stiff armored mechanistic experience of myself and that becomes mechanistic models of the world. And that becomes the kind of will where you can just be stubborn and bloody minded and try to accomplish this one preset outcome at the expense of everything else, which isn't really the kind of will we're talking about. And when you move into Einstein, like you say, that notion that there's these special singular agents is much more distributed. The agency is found in all kinds of different facets of the reality, co-enacting the effects that we think of as the effects of some cause. But in order to be able to take seriously that radical decentering of agency, we have to be able to physically and emotionally allow ourselves to undergo the movements and the sensations that would be required for that. Otherwise, we could get the idea, we could use it to make some calculations, but it won't feel real. And we may not be able to understand it, even though we can say it to each other, go, look, this is our new sophisticated map of the universe, but we may continue to act as though we were 18th century mechanists nonetheless. Yeah. And so the body is really a linchpin here, because as you're saying, because just think of how we construct our hidden mental models about the mind, the will, and the body. Like we'll say, oh, we we get the impression that the body, because it's material, ha- is more constrained than the mind, right? That I can, we, I can, there, there's a subtle assumption in the way our language works that the body is closer, more like nature, more like matter, more deterministic than the mind. And this is a real problem because as you just so well articulated that the insight generator and the freedom to will and the freedom to disembed from mental models is dependent upon the freedom of the body. How, if, if the body expresses and experiences itself as free and not constrained and yet we talk about the body as if it's in this downward stack of from more free to less free because we mistake it for being like nature and we deanimate nature into mechanistic Newtonian cause and effect. We might say, oh, we, we, we don't yet know what all the linkages are, but it's possible to be known. And so this requires us then to reimagine, as I said, Einstein, reimagine self-animated form. I'm composed, my body is composed of relations of at all scale of self-animated form which is composed of intelligences that have evolved through the cosmos and the causal field manifold over eons and to experience my body as the fulcrum of all these intelligences and all of these possibilities and to experience my body as the potential state of the the presentation of the world for me. You know, we haven't even gotten into then representation it gets is all self-reflective, symbolic, you know, but we're just talking about the fundamental presentation of the world at this level. 
And so I think that if, if as teachers or philosophers or pontificators, philosophers, pontificators, podcasters, prognosticators, uh, all these P words, professors, if we want to re-enchant the world with this kind of living, willing, thriving uh, model, then I think we need to be take responsibility for the models that we package our teaching into. And so like one of my pet peeves is the evolutionary stack, you know, that goes from matter, you know, energy to matter, the elements, and then the primordial elements to the, you know, biome and the biome to the ant plants and the plants to the animals, the animals to the higher animals and to people. I think that this is, this is, needs to be reimagined. We, we, and, and of course we can say, well, you know, it's emergent and life is continuous, but the architecture of the model, the architecture of the framework has what I call epistemic leakage. It leaks out the kind of agency we have is not the kind of agency that the earth has. I mean, the earth, <laughs> I don't have enough agency to stop a projectile from, you know, um, escaping orbit, but the earth does. I mean, that's, that's a lot of agency. I mean, look at the agency of the sun. Everything that has is possible. If you look at, you know, we did this visualization in the pop-up school. So you have, did I talk to you about the turtle egg already in the previous conversation? I'm not sure. Why don't you go ahead and remind us? Well, like a turtle lays an egg and they never come back. They don't have mothers or fathers. They never come back. They don't teach us anything. And so everything that that turtle has to grow up to be has to be already the seed of it, the germ of it has to be included in the egg. This is phenomenal because if you're a sea turtle, you have to learn how to, I mean, it's it's just it's just phenomenal, okay? I mean, it's a it's an open living system, so it does require inputs, like it needs to be warm and it's but so we started to think of the earth, you know, here's a rock in space. Here's the sun. Of course, it's it's got more relationships with that, but everything that the earth needed to become what it is today was already there right? When it's just a rock in space. And then, so this is what I'm saying. It's like, you can't just fly by and say, oh, it's just a rock that without, you know, that will stay in motion until it hits an object and won't, and, you know, won't move unless something pushes it or something. Of course, it needs the sun, right? So it's a, it's not a closed system. It needs the sun. But if you think about, just think about the earth that way as, you know, a turtle egg in space. You'll get a sense of like how much 
capacity and agency is in the things that we think are just objects and dead things. So that's different than saying, you know, and then there was dumb matter and then, you know, there's some biochemistry and then there's, and I get this cause and effect that makes it until here's human agency at the top. That's a different, what I'm describing is a completely different attitude about reality that I wish more of us, if we talk about it, a lot of us would agree, yeah, that's really living. This is the way that we want to envision the world. But then we default to these mental models and these ways of speaking that prosecutes that enchanted, that sense of agency all the way up and all the way down. It, 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 it robs us of this causal wildness in all things of which we are inherit. So, you know, I inherit the agency of the atom and I inherit the agency of the nucleotide and I inherit the agency of the chemicals. Oh man, what I am is this burst of all these agencies. The will is, is the collective agency of all of that that comes through me. And then I have this potential to learn where I have advantage and affordance to shape myself as it comes through. So it presents more of the kind of world I want to inhabit. That's the claim I'm trying to make here. <laughs> yeah, three, three places I would go from there. Um, one is, I think a lot of the people who are trying to help the world move forward qualitatively using something like complex systems approaches or things like that are uh, supplementing with magic on the side and that they're not introducing it into the framing of their model out of a sense of wanting to impress certain peers or wanting to keep a toehold on what seems like an institutional, academic, rigorous form of communication. There's some kind of, some kind of allegiance that's reflected in that presentation and in the failure to move their, their hidden magical in private side into the structure of the model. So I think it'd be interesting to look at the incentives that lead people to not fully bring those two elements in their presentation together, which would, I agree, be good for everyone to hear. I'm thinking of, uh, well, I had this conversation with Rupert Sheldrake, and a lot of it was around which, what things count as the things, right? And he mostly wanted to talk about believing the sun is conscious. And think there needs to be some kind of argument around his is self-organizing complex systems. He's anything that's doing that has interiority. Although he was a little wishy-washy when I asked him about a whorl in a bathtub, but there's some kind of logic around what's a phenomenon that could be an agent and what's an epiphenomenon, right? And I think a lot of people, when they look at the earth, uh, might think of it as not an entity, Right, as an assemblage of entities and therefore not having agency, just being more like the wind and less like a cell, so to speak. So that's a that's a debate that's open for people to have. 
But I think wherever there is a legitimate argument that something is an entity, then it's reasonable to think that that enemy exhibits agency of some kind. And that these agencies are nested within each other. This is another part of this conversation I had with Sheldrake because I pestered him with a few Gurdjieffian questions. And in the Gurdjieffian mythos, the inner spiritual life of human beings is adapted to perform roles within ecosystems, right? And so if the sun is a conscious entity, or the heliosphere, let's say, and the biosphere is a conscious entity, and then you have human creatures evolving their agency, then it evolves inside those subjectivities, and its subjectivity may have some kind of role to play in those niches that it's adapted to be part of, and that that role is simultaneously an increase of our freedom and an increase of our conformity, which is an interesting thing, right? That we often think of freedom as being opposed to some kind of rule or restriction, but when we examine it, it's always freedom to participate in some role or restriction even the kind of low-grade pseudo-conservative idea that we need freedom in our country, they mean freedom to impose a certain set of standards that everyone has to follow and conform to in society. And then the third thing, and I think this gets to your some of what you were saying, is that I find the stack model insufficient, has epistemic leakage in some areas, and I'm looking at how I've tried to deal with that. Uh, one of the ways, which you know, is just the tip of the iceberg, is to make sure that the the so-called alternative states are not just stacked on top of the so-called developmental stages because that stack reflects this old cultural sensibility that the gross is at the bottom like you're saying with the body and everything that's increasingly abstract and impersonal it is inherently better and is inherently the trajectory we should be following it is inherently where the value and meaning and freedom resides and i think that's problematic and one of the ways I deal with that is separating out those states and thinking of them as simultaneous or as like a tetra ontology with different interfaces with each other. And therefore, the causal or self-causal, you know, uh, pure syntactical lattice dimension of reality is not above or below the emergent stack of things we see in the history of this last 14 billion years, but is more like orthogonal. It enters at all of those as does the qualitative energetic aspect, the subtle aspect. Those things are coming in from the side and they can interact equally well at any layer of the stack. So insofar as we say there might be some, that that syntax consists of collaborative self-determining entities of some kind that reflect the overall necessarily self-determining structure of reality because reality can't be determined by something outside of itself because that thing wouldn't be real. So it like holographically or fractally distributes this self-determinism to its syntactical structure. And that syntactical structure affords agency, um, like I was saying, perpendicular to every layer of the stack. So every layer of the stack is infused with that and could say equally in some way. That's not, but that's that's the three or four things that came up for me when you said that. No, no. So it's it's you know you uh, you could create an explosion diagram. So the the stack is just a perspective from one part part of the stack. That's what I got from you going like this. So 
you know, there's this great, again, these ideas are already well woven into biology and physics. And, and of course, we're taking it into more esoteric, but the ideas, the shifts themselves are well woven into um, our, our intellectual domains already. So for example, there's this great visualization of the evolutionary tree. That's not like a tree. It's like this big fan. Have you seen it? It's really beautiful. So it starts with the archaea, then the bacteria in the archaea, which are two major branches. And then it, it, it goes like that. But that's the version from the humans. There's a version that shows it from the view of the archaea and the the humans are just this little tiny piece on it and that they're equally valid that's what i'm saying they're equally complex views of reality and they're equally valid but we as humans perhaps have the ability to understand if not inhabit the other perspectives of the stack from the other stacks so that's that's one way of looking at this i think the other thing that you said that is important is that okay is the sun conscious so i wouldn't say the sun is conscious and then of course we have to do some semantic mapping what do you mean by conscious what i what i would say is that the sun is a body in space and bodies in space have agency and different and so the word conscious to me uh is too close to self-reflective consciousness so um now you could strip it of that of that term but yeah i i, I would i would diverge those two terms but so and, and this notion of um you were touching on like less freedoms and more freedoms. I call it, um, if there wasn't certain metastable patterns, you know, if, if the sun didn't do what it does every day, then the earth wouldn't be possible. If my, if my cells didn't promise to behave the way they, and exercise their agency in a certain way, then I wouldn't be possible. And so there is this interesting relationship between, in, in order to imbue it with a sense of agency and not determinism, I call it promise. The way that agents promise, give, give a certain type of promise that affords a greater possibility or, or even in trivial matters, you know, if the, if the rock did not promise to lay upon the earth I couldn't pick it up and throw it, right? And so now we have a way to inhabit this enchanted world where everything that seems, we used to call deterministic, we see are these deep evolutionary grooves that are like promises that have been made so that other possibilities can, can be afforded. And it goes back and forth, right? So for example, there's a certain uh, bacterium that lives in the bladder of a sheep. And even though that bacterium is lower down the stack, it's, 
existence has been afforded by something higher in the stack. So until sheep bladders evolved, these bacteria didn't have the environment for them to fit in. So I'm trying to show you that the stack is multi-dimensional directional. So it's not that the lower things always promise the possibility to higher. The higher then create environments and fields that the lower things, that make the lower things possible. This is not a unidirectional stack both evolutionarily in time or space. This is something that is well known that we need to wrap our heads around and start talking from these self-evident things. So the, the and 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 to make another point, and then I'll stop, is like the stack gives you the impression that fish emerged a long time ago, you know, amphibians emerged and then fish. And then this is this is a developmental uh, um, theory of change. We it, it doesn't it, we think that evolution is like development. In development, the next higher form develops from the prior higher form. So I have to be two feet before I'm three feet. Then I don't have to go back to being one foot tall to be four feet tall. But this is not how evolutionary evolution works. It goes back and forth. So when I look at an amphibian, I'm not only looking at my past ancestor. I'm looking at the potential progenitor of my future self. Because for example, when the dinosaurs were the highest, the next, we didn't descend from the dinosaurs. We descended from the lowly shrews. And the dinosaurs didn't descend from the fabulous fishes of the Cambrian explosion because they all died out. They descended from the lowly worms that survived. And so if you really get, wrap your head around what evolution is saying, is that I'm not just looking at my past when I look at a frog. I'm looking at the potential progenitor of my future. If shit hits the fans or the bacteria. And this is how we re-enchant the world. We don't stack it all in the past, lower, done, over, in the past, more deterministic, less agency. This has to be reimagined. And as I'm saying, is these grooves in our understanding are already well established in biology and physics. Part of me would like to go to um, exploring the phenomenology of navigating choices. But before getting there, um, in response to what you're saying, uh, I think of two, I guess, spiritual approaches. One is, uh, I'm thinking of Aleister Crowley and the, um, the occultism of the will. But there's actually a very sophisticated element in the cosmology that he proposes, where the will is uh, unfolding, that you are a whole world space unfolding and you unfold through merging with other perspectives, which is very in alignment with a kind of Ken Wilber model. And even you were saying that the thing that might make the humans a little different on the fan is the possibility 
of taking the perspectives from other pieces of the fan, which strikes me as very much what the Crowleyan school of magic was saying about how the will is increased in power is by merging with these alternatives. But that we very often do that in a way that's somewhat insufficient, right? So when we look at the ancestor organism, right, we can see it as the ancestor, but we haven't really merged with it until we appreciate it as, as a currently existing force of generating futures as, as, as our maker in its way, right? It's got a number of dimensions and we haven't really taken it on board. Uh, unless we see it in this more multi-dimensional agentic fashion. And that's important if our special possibility in terms of increasing will is to be able to take a more distributed set of perspectives on board. And it has to be more richly done. And I think that's one of the things you're pointing toward. Uh, another thing that came up for me was, was a way that I translate my structural agnosticism about determinism into internal practice, because one kind of non-dual self-inquiry is that when something arises, um, you see that you have these competing dispositions, and very often they can be grouped into two main categories, one where you want to get free of it, and the other one where you want to get more engaged, try to control it or do something with it. And the non-dual insight is very often, yeah, those can't be different, right? You have to, you have to get free as the engagement, something like that. And I think that's a natural extension of the fact that you, you can't really distinguish determinism and indeterminism. You can't really distinguish freedom from conformity. They're always somehow both together. You're, you're getting free to be constricted by something in some way. Uh, and I think that we can open ourselves up to more agency by becoming more disposed to being functional in different areas of our life, in part through understanding that the apparent contrast between freedom and non-freedom uh, that's standing between us and that area of life, that that doesn't exist, it doesn't count, it gets melted. We undo the intensity of that distinction, and then we are more available for a kind of organic functional relationship to those different zones and concerns of life. So that makes me think of, okay, we're into the phenomenology as we notice ourselves working with these questions or choice fields. So for me, it's about, we use this, this term, opening more space. So whenever I see what I would describe as two competing energies or dissonant energies or proclivities or, or some kind of dissonance in myself, this is also true when I'm doing collective insight practice and use and, and dissonance between two people, like the shit's hitting the fan and you're like, you know, I always say, okay, uh, instead of being the ping pong ball, I, I say, I, I open this, I, I move to a larger space and say, what is it such that these two energies can occupy the same space right now? That leads me to a different kind of inquiry. So like, why, why, and I always assume there's some intelligence of why they're in the same space at the same time. So that's the move I make. I, I, I first feel contracted usually, you know, like, oh my God, like, and then I'm like, but wait, they're in these two 
their intention and they're occupying the same space and time. Why is that? What, what, why is that the case? And that will give me insight into the context or the, the system that is arising from them. And that is, I would say, an act of choice that movement to step back and inquire. I always assume there's an intelligence that is <laughs> Why is this energy, this dog energy, entering this space right now? See, I, I, I was just thinking about how to come back to it. That's exactly what happened. And so the move would be, what is this? supporting me to perform exactly what I was talking. There's, there's, there's this way to notice that there's a tension and then to say, why is this here? What is it affording? This is very similar to it's completely different than to come kind of adaptive systems. I've got to respond. I've got to be resilient. I've got to do something about the situation. And okay, quiet. That's enough. Good boy. And so it, I try to guard in the same way. Now. Like, why are the aphids here? Why are the slugs here? What? I have since I since I have more life in my garden, what can I do to my what difference can it's a difference and how can that difference afford me a possibility I've not thought of before? And it requires a great deal of vigilance. I'm lucky because I've talked myself into believing this and really have you know, as you take chances, you start to become more successful. I liked your word voluntary, like, like you could change all these things. They have, these two tensions have voluntarily appeared. The aphids and the slug and the vegetables that are being eaten have volunteered themselves into this presence, the world as presencing. What does that afford for me? And I, I try to re-examine everything as, it has its own intelligence that I don't know. So I'm not going to be skeptical about it. I, I see everything as opening possibilities that were not possible before. And shame on me if, if, I, can't, if I can't see them. So it becomes an act of trying to have more skill, skillful perception. That sounds very Nietzschean to me, right? Like it's a... It's an empowerment strategy. Now, I think we should, you know, there's an interesting discussion to be had about what, what the presumption of intelligence and the opening to possibilities might preclude or close down, right? That may be an unexpected aspect of that. But Bruce and I recently had a discussion with Verveke around um, what does an ecological Nietzsche look like in the same sense that Nietzsche called for a musical Socrates. If we called for an ecological reading of Nietzsche, what would we get? And in the sense of amor fati, to say of every it was that I willed it thus, 
right? To not just assume as a point of dogmatic fact that God is orchestrating the universe and has created everything that happened just to happen perfectly for little old me, but something like that, a sense of the destiny of the moment, uh, that there's an intelligence that's affording this specific thing, that that's part of what he called the formula for greatness, uh, the route to empowerment, is to make the assumption of an intelligence. And it sounds, when he says it, very much like it's just the individual contemplating their destiny in the world. But like you say, the same kind of approach can be very intelligently brought to the aphids, say, right, to, to make that presumption of intelligence is a sign a, that there's already a lot of health and power in the person making that assumption, and B, it's a strategic element in a way to increase that set of possibilities of how one can be uh, more richly potent in, in an ecosystem, in a world. I have uh, in the back of my mind about four or five examples of, of how I've related to decision making. And I thought maybe I would trot them out and see if they bring anything up for us in the discussion. Yeah, so let's do that. And I just want to capture this because we, I said earlier, well, what else, we think of will to power. What, what else is there a will to? And I think you just said it beautifully. It's a will to volunteer to work with these intelligences that you to receive them because they're greater than yours. This and this is a kind of will that's a different than a will to power, right? It's a will to receive these intelligences that are always volunteering themselves it's a different kind of will that was beautiful what you said and it, it it answered that question so let's try out your list oh, okay my list yeah what was i imagining okay i'm thinking of a time i was at the beach i find this wonderful stump that looks like the insane face of a, a gnome with tentacles coming out of his head and i think mm, it's so it's so charming to me this image that I'm seeing, I think this should be turned into art. This should be drawn or painted or something like that. And there's a big gap between that moment of seeing and wanting and this thing actually coming about. A lot of things can go wrong. And it seems to me I don't even want to try to control that. But what I volunteer to do in myself is to go halfway, let's say. Like, well, I'll take this home and I'll get out the art supplies. I'll go at least that far. I'm not committed, but I'm going to some proximal threshold at which that might be able to decide and or carry me to the next stage. And one of the things that looks to me about, about freedom of the will that's very intriguing is we often you know, do like a quantum jump and don't see any intermediary material. We're very often the decision about whether it manifests is determined by whether you go halfway, not whether you go all the way. Uh, so that's one kind of a thing. When I was a kid, I used to have this experience playing Trivial Pursuit all the time, where I would a question would get asked and a, something would flash through my head, and I couldn't justify it. I didn't have enough knowledge to say why that thing would be true. So it's like I didn't get to say it. I wasn't allowed to. And then it would turn out it was the answer, and I couldn't justify it, so I couldn't say it. But I, I had a girlfriend, and her approach to 
she would do like psychometry and try to get readings off objects. And what she always said she was looking for was a cold impression, one that wasn't charged. It would you'd almost bypass it because it was neutral, like that trivial pursuit thing it was too frictionless. And there are some uh, there's a Russian author, Vadim Zeland, who proposes a kind of new age. Here's how you use your will to orchestrate the world. But he's very careful to say you can't you can't be too worried about the thing or too eager to get it. It's got to be precisely balanced. Uh, it's got to be you know have a certain kind of phenomenological neutrality to be uh, able to afford you a greater potency in enacting that thing. So that's something that comes up. There's a sense of mediation through the other in a weird way, like. I'm out walking in the yard and I see some garbage and I think, oh, someone should pick that up. <laughs> All right, and then there's a moment where I go, wait a minute, you've, you've been in situations like this before. You're that someone. I'm like, oh, that's right. That other person is me. And in that like short circuit or loop completion, whatever that is, I become a more powerful agent, right? I go and pick up that piece of garbage. My free will was increased in this context through some kind of relationship to the notion of the hypothetical free will of the other. So that was interesting. I look around at the life I'm living right now and I go, how did I get here? How is this? This life seems more wonderful than the life I had five years ago, but I can't see that I was capable of causing this to happen. It seems to me that at best what I did was build up something in myself to the point where it caused it to happen. And that, you know, it's like, <laughs> you can't fly around when you're on the ground, but if you were somehow able to levitate a little bit, then you could move or you'd have more range <laughs> dimensions of freedom or something like that. So there's a difference between in my experience, what it is I feel like I'm capable of bringing to the situation and the thing that actually causes the changes and they can be a complementary team or not, but it doesn't seem to me that I'm directly making the changes or certainly not retroactively. There appears to be no strong continuity unless I just want to assert there is with no felt justification. Uh, and maybe the final one that comes up for me is uh, something like, uh, what would be a good example? I get an email from someone who always sends uh emotionally distressing cognitively energy consuming messages you think oh god i gotta read this i pretty much know what's going to be in it and then i'm gonna have to live that out for days <laughs> this person is always so accusatory or hyperbolic or unfair or whatever it is right and so i now have a choice right am i gonna am i gonna get engaged am i gonna dismiss it and i go as soon as i see that choice i don't want to be trapped in either of those choices what I want is some third option that gets me the benefits I like about each of those. And that's going to take me some time. I got to slow down for it. But I also can do a kind of like visceral weighing. I go lean into this one and lean into this one, go back and forth like I'm King Solomon making a decision. And it does seem like if I commit to that process, to seeing it through until there's a felt shift, that I will get to a point where I suddenly either know why to do one of them in a way that satisfies the other one, or think of a whole other thing to do that satisfies both of them. And that seems to me to be a grade of choice completely different than just choosing to do one of the options that came up for me. So that's a, you know, 
a handful of different phenomenologies of my experience of choice. Yeah, I think they're great. And I think that this is really what you're describing is only where choice lies. Everything else gets you yet again, another round around the billiard ball model of you know, the philosophical question. So, you know, I got this image. I'm very familiar with all of these and I'll comment on each one of them, but I got this image of, you know, it's very Wu Wei, it's very Taoist. And I got this image of a safe cracker. And, you know, they have these great movies where she's cracking the safe and you can see, and then when the last one goes in, right? And this is the, you know, I think this is the kind of felt shift you're talking about. It's kind of like you're being very sensitive. You're not going to go in and crack, you know, say, okay, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to use this number and then try it. That's not what they do, right? It's a, it's a, I, I move one way and I get a negative, you know, sometimes I don't even think about it for another year. And then all of a sudden click, click, that, that, that match has come up. And I know like a lot of times uh, for people who are very savvy about the web, this is also true for self-organized collective intelligence. It's like you do something and then you need to have patience because you know that that's something you put out is in the web doing something. And you don't have to do anything more about it until it comes back and it represents itself to you. And it's obvious, you know, instead of constantly putting out, putting out, putting out, you know, advocating for yourself and then trying to uh, make sure that people aren't saying the wrong thing about it and chasing down people who are your critic. All this stuff is a waste of time because you know that there are you can just let all this stuff that's going on behind the scenes just just go on and then you don't have it's easier for you you can you know paint or something and then one day it'll come back around if it if it has energy in the system so i loved your your little mentioning that how did you end up in a situation you ended up and this is exactly how i started first thinking about a theory of complex potential states because my whole life, I was, you know, I'm very system oriented. I was running operations. I score like over the charts in terms of systematizing processes. I ran a large landscape design build firm, which was all about scheduling and competing resources and juggling. And, and then the recession hit and I left my job. And I remember lying in bed and looking into the future and I'd see nothing. Like I didn't have any money. I had a lot of debt because we just bought the farm. I didn't have any skills. I mean, I never worked for like a business. Like it was always small business. And I would, and I remember sitting there night after night in this distinct impression of looking into the future, even like for tomorrow and seeing nothing. And it was very bizarre. Right. And I was completely disoriented. And then I remember the first time I gave this 
talk about complex potential states, a theory of complex potential states was at Dave Snowden's retreat in Whistler. This was three or four years ago. Um, I was one of the three presenters there. And I was telling this story, like how, how some complex, like how did it, how was it that I come to be speaking to Dave Snowden's you know, yearly retreat from where I was. This is like, and so um, I, I was trying to notice how this reality shapes, it shapes itself the way clouds shape pictures. So there is, cloud-shaped pictures in your mind, the clouds are doing something, the wind is doing something, the water vapor is doing something, but you're doing something too. And it's a, it's a, it's very, you know, it has a lot of what you described. It's, it's not committing, it's trusting, it's noticing, it's having a certain vigilance. It's adding value, like where you can add value. Like why is making this chili? Putting, putting attention to make this chili really good for my husband. How does it get me to speaking in front of Dave Snowden's? But if you keep adding value and, and receiving what's in front of you, this builds up what you're doing is you're amending the potential state. The way you would, instead of growing, spending so much time Fussing with your tomatoes, you just spend all your time increasing the fertility of the soil. That's what it is. It's it's a move to spending all your time to increasing the fertility of the potential state and then receiving what comes along because it is formed out of the fertility that you're growing and it has a better intelligence than you and it's something like that, you know, it's Taoism, Wu Wei 101. But I think that, yes, it's subtle. Yes, it may seem like magic or esoteric. But I think that those of us in this space, integral diaspora community, metamodernism, I think these are the kinds of realizations, teachings, experiential sharing that need a lot more conversation time and much less just building up more detail on old models. I, 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 yeah. Yeah. That's my feeling as well. I don't want to, I mean, there have to be spaces for other kinds of what we might think of as more classical discussions as well, because we don't know exactly where different domains of magic might apply, so to speak, right? There might be ranges of phenomena in which tactical, linear, mechanistic thinking actually affords you better outcomes or not. We're just not sure. But I think the my feeling sense of what I want to focus on and what I'm hearing from more and more people is the importance of bringing these other kinds of approaches to choice and will 
into the picture. And part of that, I think, is a sense that we need um, that a that we're suffering collectively from the accumulating degenerate effects of what seem like very straightforward choosing and willing activities. Uh, and so the qualitative outcomes are below the level we were hoping for, and they aren't being applied around the system as thoroughly as we expected. So if we want quality of outcome and not just getting what we decided, uh, if we want to be surprised by how well it works with so many things, which I think we need to in order to get the kinds of solutions that undermine the meta crisis. <laughs> uh, then we definitely need to lean more into framings, yes, but fundamentally practices that allow us to do this a little bit differently. Uh, what you were saying reminded me of a quote from Mother Teresa, who uh, I have mixed feelings about, but she said, you can't do great things. You can only do small things well, right? So that sense of I'm adding value to each of these things. And I don't know what that's going to build up to, but I can do that. And I can't really just try to do a big thing. Or if I did try, I'd probably mangle it somehow. So it is important to follow that weaving and webbing. Uh, I think another thing that's important is uh, seeing that the world consists of intention in a way. I don't know if you know Lester Levinson. He created something called uh, the release technique. It was also called the Sedona method for a while. It was like a mid 20th century American spiritual teacher. And he started to do this practice. Uh, it was really just a use of attention to let go of limiting forms of feeling. And then it, started to change him and there's some old tapes of him like describing the changes and one of the changes was he suddenly started to see that everything had begun as a thought is how he put it right that everything everywhere he looked he had oh somebody thought of that and now it exists and so the world he was inhabiting became one where a potential led to a thing and he saw that everywhere and i think there's a degree to which our ability to be agents in this world is partly dependent upon seeing the world as an expression of agencies and potentials. And in doing that, discrimination, like qualitative discrimination, seems really important. There's different classes of intentions or prompts or potentials that we can undertake. Uh, it feels to me like we're always, I might have mentioned this last time, like we're always thinking of things <laughs> and we're always doing things. But we're seldom intentionally doing one of those things we thought. And that that's a practice to go, oh, I decide to do this. And, and there are a number of spiritual traditions where people can be very arbitrary about that, right? Like, I'm going to put my hand in a bucket of ice water tomorrow at 314. And, and you find that's very hard to accomplish. And so you're supposed to undertake it. Or maybe the guru gives you a task and it's quasi-arbitrary. It's certainly arbitrary relative to what you would come up with for yourself. But you're just going to commit yourself to trying to be a better conduit between an unnecessary prompt and an enactment so that you become more of a, that you're a sturdier filament for that to travel through. So there's this one sense in which how well can you enact intentions? And then this other sense of which intentions do you want to enact? Because lots of things are going through my head. And which ones are the ones that have that flavor we say to me and demonstrate in the outcomes that it's likely to be omnidirectionally good for things rather than just satisfying one thing at the expense of something else.
Yeah, and maybe we could we could end with that because that that opens up a whole another. You know, I think this one conversation we started branches out to reexamining a lot of these things. Um, so, for example, I'm reading this book, Effortless Attention: New Perspective in the Cognitive Science of Attention in Action. And as I said, a lot of these ideas are well already well established. And in this, for example, they talk about how they, they, there's a lot of misunderstanding. Like if you put a lot of effort, if you have spent a lot of time putting effort, effort, effortful attention on something, then you end up having a rebound and you have less impulse control right afterwards. Like there's this, this pump thing and it reminds me of like all these meditation retreats I've been on, you know, you spend three days in silent discipline meditation and then everybody goes out and it becomes like a bacchanalian Dionysian, like, like orgy for three days. And you wonder like, why? And so, and then there's this book, Buddhism 3.0 that, that talks about this, this, is, this notion that the mind is a, a puppy that's not trained. And the assumption that, well, why shouldn't the, why should the mind be like a trained puppy? Maybe, you know, and there's all these, there's all these new neuroscience around, um, you know, you know I, I've always claimed that the mind we have today is not the same mind that Buddha's students had, you know, 3,500 years ago. And so we need to update. And so some of these practices are not beneficial to the kinds of minds we have today. And so I think that what I'm interested in is having conversations that significantly update and upgrade uh, some of the practices and models and assumptions of our community. Because I think, yeah, it's, it's time to um, advance into refreshing, refreshing new uh, ways of, of languaging and and realizing and experiencing uh what these interests are yeah i think it's important for this to be a, a fresh and ongoing and open discussion uh, in a way that i think we've done it here today which is the notion of whether the universe is metaphysically deterministic or indeterministic is the least interesting part of the free will discussion and there are in buddhist history there's a, there's a lot of variation for different kinds of minds already, or teachings are given to different people in different contexts. And you know, Zen's very clear. This is only for certain people who are like this. <laughs> this is not a teaching for everyone. Nietzsche is like that as well. These are not general writings. These are not even writings for general philosophers. These are very, it's a very specific targeted audience here who has a certain kind of mind. And we need to be figuring out what kinds of minds we have today and what kinds of challenges we face and what kind of outcomes we need in order to think about how we undertake practices to build up a will that's appropriate for the kind of people we find ourselves to be in the kind of world we find ourselves in. And it's essential if we're going to solve any of the collective problems to enhance uh, the future quality of life um, that we really take seriously these uh, subtler and less linear uh, practices, as well as, like we were saying at the beginning, 
taking seriously the very question of intentionality and will that's been put a little bit to the side over the last two or 300 years. So fantastic discussion. <laughs> you were so accommodating. 